Good morning, Saltbox. Can we give Stacy and Rick a hand? There's always something about Stacy's worship that reminds me of just sitting at the feet of Jesus. I just absolutely love that. And uh, real honor to have Rick up here with her. Um, Rick is actually the chairman of the UNCW communication department. And he taught me, I think it was COM 200 in like 1999. So it is such an honor um, to have him up here and just part of this Saltbox journey with us. So I want to look into the camera and extend a warm welcome to all of you who are there. I just did a quick scroll through before I got up here. Um, but I think my favorite place has sort of been the last few weeks, uh, the, the, the viewership that's happening from Steve and Connie uh, Mitchell's boat um, down in Florida. So a uh, big hello to you guys. I hope the sun's bright and the water's clear and, and you're doing well on the intercoastal down there somewhere. Um, I also saw Wayne and Sally. Our prayers are with you guys as you're at home. I saw Jay and Donna and a, a number of others. But anyway, we love you guys. Even though we're scattered about, uh, we are one body, one in spirit. Amen. All right, um, so we are uh, in a probably just collection of talks. Um, I don't know that I do series. I do more like collections. So th this is a collection of, of talks, and we're going to take a look um, at, the, at some parables of Jesus as we head up towards Easter. Um, and during for our, for our Easter series, we're going to do a, or Easter collection, we're going to do the last seven sayings of Jesus. I think that'll be really powerful. Um, but, but we're going to look at, at a, um, a couple of parables this morning, and we're, I'm going to break it into three or four parts. So we're going to take a look at, first, uh, what is a parable? Um, and then secondly, we're going to take a look at what is the kingdom of God, because both of these parables sort of talk about the kingdom of God. Uh, then we're going to talk about sort of what is the meaning of uh, this particular set of parables. Um, and then there's a warning sort of inherent in the parables. Um, and then finally, I want to end with why in the world a mustard seed, because uh, that's, that's kind of where we're heading. So um, go with me. Uh, now, as, as we, before we read, I'm headed to Mark um, 4, and I'm actually going to read Mark 4, verses 26 uh, to 34, so just a couple short verses. Um, but before I go there, I, I want to um, paint a picture. So, so this is sort of what's happening. Um, Jesus is fresh on the scene in Galilee. He's fresh on the scene in Israel, and his ministry is off to the races. In fact, it, it isn't but a few chapters earlier that he's got this vibrant, uh, the end of chapter one and going into chapter two, he's got this vibrant um, healing ministry um, in this town of Capernaum, which is on the very northernmost part of the Sea of Galilee. And people are coming to him literally by the droves from all over the place. And he's healing people and he's setting people free. And it's fascinating in that first chapter of Mark because you actually see Jesus. Jesus withdraw up to a lonely place and pray, and you see a, a God the Father literally directing him away from just a healing ministry into a broader um, preaching and teaching ministry, which is really fascinating. And uh, so uh, what has happened by the time we get to Mark 4 is that people are crowding in from Jesus. So uh, they're, they're crowding in from everywhere. So you have families gathering, you have kids gathering. I'm sure you have kids that aren't listening to their mom and all manner of melee and aren't listening to their dad, and you have people eating and you have people coming and going. People are camping like to be near Jesus. They're literally following him around this Galilean countryside. And you know, if, if I uh, was vulnerable for just a second, if I have a dream um, of anything, like if, if I could do anything, uh, here's what I would want more than anything. I would want to actually journey with Jesus through the Galilean countryside. I would have loved to have actually walked with him. I would have loved to um, have camped with him. You know, you think of the 11 disciples or the 12 disciples, um, at the end it was 11, and then all the people that followed along with him, and they literally journeyed, uh, you know, staying in caves and camping out under the stars and getting up in the morning and starting a fire and perhaps roasting fish over the fire and eating together and laughing and dialoguing. It's just this, um, if I can do anything when I get to heaven, I'm going to say, Jesus, uh, would you 
let me walk with you uh, through the Holy Land. And as we go through, would you just enliven me that I could even see and fully grasp and taste and understand all that happened and transpired in this place. So back to where we are here in Mark 4, um, Jesus is literally sort of on the edge uh, of the Sea of Galilee. So the Sea of Galilee would be behind him. And you have all these people pressing in. So I just see families. um, I see lots of noise. I see people carrying food and picnics and, um, you know, the, 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 the squawking of probably goats and donkeys and just a melee of things are sort of going on. And as these people are kind of pressing in, in on Jesus and, and his disciples, he keeps taking a step back, and he actually finds himself at the edge with his heels very touching the Sea of Galilee. And the Sea of Galilee would, is most days very, very slick and very calm, and you could see all the way probably across it, and as you raise your eyes, what you would see is a ridgeline of mountains all the way around, and you're down in this beautiful valley, and as the, this crowd of probably thousands presses in on Jesus, um, he takes a step back into the Sea of Galilee, and he actually turns, and there's a boat, and he steps up into the boat. And, uh, you know, um, that Jesus chose to hang out with fishermen is a beautiful thing. I love fishermen. Uh, When I was a young guy, uh, my dad was a commercial fisherman part-time, and they are a, um, a, a colorful uh, even surly group that I act absolutely love. Uh, we actually, um, speaking of my dad, we actually got to travel through uh, Alaska when I was, uh, I think I was 18, so it was 1999. And uh, we salmon fished on a commercial salmon boat for uh, a short period of time. And it was amazing, but what a colorful, uh, surly, just vibrant group of people we got to spend some time with. So here's Jesus, and literally he's stepping back into the Sea of Galilee, and he You just see him grabbing the side of a boat, the gunwale of a boat, and stepping up into this boat. And and the way only Jesus can do, he breaks all the molds. He does everything different than anybody has ever done. And he literally just pushes himself off on this boat, and the boat drifts back onto the Sea of Galilee. And suddenly what you have is this natural acoustic masterpiece that just sort of unfolds. So Jesus' voice is, is carrying over the still waters, um, and then typically the, 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 the wind is blowing from the south towards the north on the Sea of Galilee, especially in the morning. So the wind would be behind him carrying his voice up into the hills. So you have this big, beautiful sort of natural amphitheater that's formed. And so the voice of a man, the voice of Jesus would have carried, and thousands would have been present that day and literally could have heard every word he said. So you have this Jesus on a boat, and he is, he is pushed off from shore, and he literally begins to teach them. If you want to read that, go to the very first part of Mark chapter 4. But he actually begins to teach them. And now let me, let me sort of pause that thought. So that's the setting. Jesus is on a boat. He's teaching. It's probably morning time, and everyone is, is um, enjoying the cool of, of the morning. Now, let's talk for just a minute um, about the, the setting or sort of what's happening in the country of Israel at this time. Um, there's a guy uh, by the name of John the Baptist. Now, most of you have heard of him, maybe? Yes? He was a um, surly character himself. I like the word surly today. I don't know why. But he was a surly character himself. And uh, John was wild because he had long hair and he, had, um, he wore camel skin, which is really scratchy, like camel skin, camel coats today are like soft and nice. They're not really camel. I don't know why they call them camel skin, but whatever. Um, But he was literally wearing camel skin, so it's scratchy, and then he's got this leather sash about him, and uh, he he is eating honey and locusts. I mean, what a what a kind of man's man out there, just living in the living in the rough, probably stinky. And uh, did he say that in church? (laughs) I did, I did. Uh, and, and literally, what you have John the Baptist, like just in the days and in the months ahead of this passage that we're reading in Mark 4, you literally have John the Baptist going, Repent! The kingdom of heaven is near! And John is going through the, the countryside, and he's at some points camped out by the Jordan River, and at other points he's camped out at different places. And he's literally saying, repent, and people are coming by the droves uh, from the cities and from the towns and from the villages. And so you have this huge, impressive, um, even sensational ministry that's happening, like vibrant. I mean, uh, we have just a couple people here today, and we had a couple people in the last service, and we have a couple people online. And, and what is amazing, though, is you have John the Baptist preaching and leading and ministering, and it's this huge sensation. 
People are literally coming from everywhere, emptying out the towns. They're camping out to see him and hang out with him and live with him. And then he's baptizing them in the rivers. He's baptizing them in in Galilee. And he's literally teaching this repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Now, think of a couple things he said. You've got to fully um, sort of get into where we are this morning. But he is literally saying, he foretells, he said, one is coming after me whose uh, shoes I am not worthy to untie. So immediately everybody sitting out there is going, okay, if John the Baptist is this sensational and he's this, like, he's like a rock star, right? Everybody's looking at him and loves him and respects him. And he's telling us of one who's greater. What's the natural assumption? Oh, it's going to be more sensational. Oh, it's going to be even bigger. Oh my goodness, it's going to change the whole country. And then John goes on to say some things like, he must increase and I must decrease. He talks about this, uh, this Messiah, and he says that he will do even greater things than what John has done. So what you immediately begin to get in the hearts and minds of, of the people throughout Galilee and throughout Israel is this sense that the Messiah is going to be very um, sensational, very big, and there's going to be this big ministry and huge impact, and it's going to be much bigger than John the Baptist. Now, pause that thought. So remember, we're sitting on the Sea of Galilee. Jesus is on the boat teaching. I'm just giving you kind of a setting where we are. Then you have um, what's happening in the country, which is John the Baptist uh, sort of teaching and preaching this radical repentance and foretelling the coming of Jesus. Now, let's, let's also pause that because there's something else happening um, in the country and in the hearts of the Jewish um, people that I think is really important to understand. So um, there's a king in the Old Testament by the name of King David. Now, King David was probably the height of the entire Jewish experience, King David and King Solomon. And so when the Jewish people at this time would think about the Messiah, what they're literally thinking about is a reinstatement of King David. So they're thinking armies, they're thinking chariots, they're thinking armor, they're thinking riches, they're thinking this, the, the Messiah is going to come and he's going to set up a, a Davidic kingdom. That's actually Old Testament prophecy. And they've made some assumptions that this, this uh, Messiah is going to come and his kingdom is is going to be a kingdom of this world. And so they actually sort of get it down inside their um, probably hearts and minds and psyche that he's going to come. And now at this current day, literally on this particular day when he's teaching on the Sea of Galilee, uh, Israel is ruled by, anybody know? Anybody? Anybody online? <laughs> anybody? Who, what's Israel ruled by at this particular day? Rome, that's exactly right. I knew you all knew, or half of you knew, a couple of you knew, somebody knew. Anyway, so Israel is literally ruled by Rome, and so what's in the hearts and minds of the Israel people, or the Israeli people, uh, the Hebrew people, is that this Messiah would come in the form and fashion of King David, and he would come in, and he would establish his rule. He'd overthrow Rome. He would take over the garrisons. He'd overthrow the armies. He would build a literal, physical kingdom. And from that place, most likely of Jerusalem, he had reestablished his rule and reign, and he would take over the world. And they're waiting. Now, when John the Baptist began to say, one who's coming after me is greater, there's this like deep rumbling inside the hearts and minds of the, of the people because they're going, oh, he, John has done so much. John has transformed our whole country. Thousands and thousands and thousands are going out to see John. So literally, if one who is greater than John is coming, this is the Messiah, and he's going to overthrow Rome, and we're gonna, he's going to establish us as this huge kingdom, and from this place, he's going to rule the world. I can't wait. And so there's this huge amount of excitement in the people. So when Jesus initially shows up and he begins to preach, now he's healing people, Um, he even raised some of the dead, he cast out demons, he fed 5,000, and that's just men, so if you count women and children, it was probably upwards of 15,000, it could even, some people say even like 20, he fed 4,000 one time, so there's these miraculous signs and wonders going on, so what are the people all over Israel doing? They're going out to see this thing. Are you kidding? I want to see 
I want to know. I want to understand what's happening. So they're literally packing up their kids and packing up their wife and packing up whoever, and we're going to go get in the station wagon, and we're going to drive out there because we want to see what in the world is going on out in the countryside, and they're camping and they're hanging out. So uh, literally, uh, you have John the Baptist coming off of this huge sort of preach, repentance, one who's coming after me is even greater, and then you have this um, thing in the hearts and minds that this Jesus is going to come and overthrow Rome and establish world dominion, and it's true true to Old Testament prophetic revelation, although there were some things, some assumptions and presumptions added into it. And then walks in Jesus. Now, Jesus was born in a little place called Bethlehem. Um, and Bethlehem is highly respected in Israel, by the way. But uh, an angel appeared to his stepfather, Joseph. I did say that, stepfather Joseph. And um, Joseph left when Jesus was a little baby and went down to Egypt for a period of time until King Herod, who was trying to kill Jesus, died. And then an angel appeared to Joseph again and said, go back um, up to Nazareth. Now, Nazareth is not respected in Israel at this time. So it's absolutely fascinating that in walks this Jewish um, carpenter or, or Jewish builder, um, as, as the, the, the Greek really translates, and um, he, he is literally from a town that nobody likes. Now, just think with me here for just a minute, because you've got this um, vivid Jesus, and things start out really good right? He's feeding 5,000, he's feeding 4,000, he's healing people, like people are coming by the thousands to hang out with him. And, and then as his ministry continues, he teaches in the form of some parables, he tells stories, he says things that are offensive. I mean, it's really interesting. One time after Jesus fed the 5,000, so there's probably 15 or 20,000 people there, he, he's like built this huge crowd overnight, right? And everybody's there and everybody's really happy and this is great and Jesus is feeding us and maybe he'll keep feeding us and we can just live here in this little utopia forever and yay, you know, everybody's happy. And then all of a sudden Jesus gets up and says, oh yeah, but you got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And what's everybody do? Somebody pointed out to me last service that that was a violation of Mosaic law and she was right. That's right. So everybody's really like, huh, what? You are crazy. And what everybody do? Jesus and 12 guys again by himself. And, and what begins to happen is as Jesus journeys, the religious people of the day, which let me say this real clear, would have been the pastors and the churches and the leaders. They hate Jesus. Imagine that. They hate Jesus, and they want to actually kill him. And then you have the Romans, who in some ways could care less about Jesus. But as Jesus' ministry sort of unfurls, what you literally begin to see is people falling away. And when it comes down to it, um, after all of Jesus' miracles, um, after all that he, he raised people from the dead, after feeding so many people, after gathering thousands and thousands and thousands of people, after preaching to people, after ministering and loving and serving, and then finally going into Jerusalem, remember he rode in on who remembers? Donkey. Yes. And he died on a cross, and then he breaks hell, he breaks death, he rises from the dead, he appears to over 500 people, and then he actually ascends into heaven. Okay? It's all there in, in the Gospels and Acts if you want to read it. Now, how many people were left hanging out in Jerusalem after Jesus ascended into heaven? Anybody know? A hundred, you were here last service. A hundred and twenty people were left. Now, here's why this is important. This is so important. All that Jesus did, all the people he healed, all the people he loved, all the people he fed, all the people he ministered to, all the people he cleansed of the demonic, all the people that were changed under the ministry and power of Jesus, all split and you've got 120 people left. You know, in America, um, I'm going to do a picture of a graph in front of me, but in America, if we look at a graph, we like everything to be up and to the right. You know what I'm saying? If I turn around, it's like the stock market. As long as it's up and to the right, everybody's good. If it's down and to the right, everybody's bad. Jesus' ministry was down and to the right. John the Baptist's ministry was up and to the right, come Jesus onto the scene and things look good, things kind of continue, and then Jesus' ministry is down and to the right. What Jesus is about is not so much the huge crowd, but the authentic few. Michael, that's not what the church in America does. I know. 
It's the truth. Come with me on the journey today and let's discover it. Okay, let's read this, uh, these two little parables. It's only eight verses. I'm in Mark 4. I'm going to start reading in verse 26. Now, pick up. Jesus is talking. He's standing on a boat. He's in a natural amphitheater. The wind's behind him, the sun's shining, and he is teaching, and thousands are there. Here's what he says. This is what the kingdom of God is like. Now, when he says kingdom of God, what is everybody in the crowd thinking? Let's see if you've been listening. What? Somebody who wasn't here last service. A, a worldly kingdom. What else? Who said? A Davidic kingdom. Excellent. I don't know who that is, but well, it's well done. A Davidic kingdom. So literally, they're thinking chariots, and they're thinking swords, and spears, and shields, and we're going to overthrow Rome, and oh, they're all riled up, and they're ready to go, right? I mean, there is literally rebellion and violence in the air in this moment. So when King Jesus stands up and he says, this is what the kingdom of God is like, all the people who are like, let's take up arms, let's take up spears, let's go, let's go, let's go. Like, I mean, they are there. Like, it is thick in the air. Reminds me of a particular time in history. This is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed. And the moment he says, a man scatters seed, can you just hear all the people who are like, let's go! Uh, a man scatters seed on the ground. Night and day, whether the man, who you would know as a farmer if you lived in this day, whether he sleeps or whether he gets up, the seed sprouts and it grows. Though he does not know how, all by itself the soil produces grain. First the stalk, so it comes up out of the ground. Then the head, then the full kernels on the head. And as soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it because the harvest has come. The sickle is just a big cutting knife that you use to harvest wheat. And everybody on the beach is listening going, huh? Verse 30, and he again said, what shall we say the kingdom of God is like? What are they thinking again? You got it. What shall we say the kingdom of God is like? Or what parable shall we use to describe it? It is like a mustard seed, which is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all the garden plants with such big branches that the birds can perch in its shade. Verse 33, with many similar parables, Jesus spoke the word to them as much as they could understand. Now, this is fascinating. Like, dig here with me just a minute. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. But when he was alone with his own disciples, he explained everything. So, Michael, are you telling me that he did not explain in, like, plain language at that point in time in a way that everyone could understand? Yes, that is what I'm telling you. That is what it says. So let's, let's back off this, and we're going to do a few little things, and then we're going to come back to it. So number one, let's, let's just talk for a second. What is a parable? I got five little things. This is not exhaustive. It's just it's a, it's some things I've read. It's some of my sense, but here it is. Number one, a parable is a tool, Okay. Like a hammer is a tool, you know? You just pound a nail into the board. I, 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 literally, a parable is a tool that usually has a powerful um, ending um, or moral uh, to it. The second thing that I would say is actually a parable um, is a story with a sting in its tail. What? A parable is a story with a sting in its tail. So it's like the moral of a story sort of catches the hearers by surprise. So uh, when you think of even, uh, it's one of my favorite theologians who actually said that, a parable is a story with a sting in its tail. Uh, when you think of that, you think of almost a little scorpion. If you step on him, what's that tail do? Comes up and gets you. So there's this, there's this sense that Jesus is telling a parable and everybody's happy and everything's going really jolly well. And all of a sudden that tail swings up and goes, bing. So there's something that jumps at you from the end of the story. The third thing that I would say is um, a parable is a comparison um, in story form, often with a deep and challenging meaning. 
the fourth thing um, that I would say, and this could be the most uh, powerful of, of, of sort of the definitions this morning of parable, is a parable is like a mirror. I actually wish I had a big mirror with me today. But if, if Jesus, now go back, Jesus is on the Sea of Galilee and he's teaching. If he took a huge mirror and he aimed it just right, um, I'm going to use you too because I did last service too. Uh, but he aimed it just right. And he, if he had a huge mirror like this and he aims it at, at uh, Missy and Daniel and then he tilts it like this. And so they're looking into the mirror. What are they seeing the reflection of? The sky. That's exactly right. So literally Jesus is going to take a mirror and he is first going to reflect to them God. Who is God? I'm going to reflect. I'm going to show you. I'm going to give you an image of God in a parable. And then typically what Jesus does is he's going to take that mirror. Go with me here. Now, again, if I'm holding the mirror, and then he's going to tilt it back down so they're facing it dead on. Now, what do they see? Themselves. So the idea of a parable is you actually find yourself in it, and then you actually see parts of yourself that you probably don't like, and that the power and presence of God needs to come in and change. So it's this shocking thing, and you're going along, and all of a sudden that sting in the tail, and the mirror comes back down, and you get to see not only a wider, broader perspective of who the king of heaven is, but then you get to see who you are. And it's like, oh, in fact, some of us hate to look in the mirror, don't we? This is really funny. I got to tell. I didn't tell this first service, but this is worth telling. Uh, this has been like, um, I don't know, maybe, maybe 10 years ago. Um, I was uh, working out. Um, believe it or not, I do that once in a while. But um, I was working out, and I was at a place called the WAC, the Wilmington Athletic Club, which doesn't exist anymore. And there was, a, um, uh, there was one of those mirror cages, and I was doing curls in the mirror cage going, yeah, yeah. And I looked up. And uh, there was some guy who was standing near me that was balding. And I went, oh, man, that sucks for that guy. <laughs> I kept doing my curls. I was feeling pretty good about myself. And I looked again, and I was like, man, I have that shirt. And I looked again, and I went, oh, my gosh. I've become that guy. I, I promise you, it happened just like that. I literally, I was standing in the mirror, and in you know those mirror cages, you can see like 15 mirrors over. And I literally thought I was looking at somebody else, and I went, <gasps> I'm balding. I got to start shaving my head. So I did. Bye-bye, hair. Now, take the mirror of Jesus again. Tells you, he's reflecting to you the kingdom of heaven, who the king is, what the kingdom is even like, and then he's going to take that mirror and bring it back down to you so you can see the ugly truth. It's not easy when you listen to a parable of Jesus. And the point is not that you would necessarily come and hear Jesus and walk away feeling better about yourself. The point is actually that you would walk away uh, more humble, more dependent, more repentant, um, so that you would recognize your need for him. That's the point of most parables. He's going to show you a mirror that lets you see God more clearly and then yourself more clearly. Uh, the last point that I would make, fifth point, is that a parable, um, and this is, uh, I'm, I don't even know if I want to use this word, but a parable was used in the hands of King Jesus like a tool um, or like a prod, almost like a weapon, you could even say, um, to challenge people, to confront people, and bring people to the point of decision. You know, this imagery that Jesus is this weak kind of, um, you know, I, I, I just don't see it. He was a carpenter. He worked with his hands. He worked with stone. If you've ever hiked around the, um, the Israeli countryside, I assure you, if you all went with me and we hiked around the countryside for three years, we'd all be ripped. I mean, I guarantee it. And if you worked with stone and you worked with wood, it's just, it's just a natural product of the evolution of a, you know, you got a 30-year-old man. He's in physical shape. So literally, um, he uses, as he's telling these stories, it's not to make you feel good, but rather it's to, um, it's to challenge people, to confront people, to bring people to a revelation of the truth of the kingdom of God, and then bring people to a point of decision. That's what preaching should do. Preaching was not intended to necessarily entertain you or even make you laugh, although both those are nice in a sermon. But preaching is intended to bring you to the point of decision where you're confronted with the reality. Now, let's flip the question. Why did Jesus use parables? This is a really hard question and a hard answer. Why did Jesus use parables? So a parable is a story with a mystery. If you dig into the Greek on English, 
um, and in Greek, the word mystery is actually the same. And Jesus is literally presenting truth in a parable in such a way that it's revealed to the right people and hidden from the wrong people. That's heavy for me. Because it's like, hang on, Michael, you're telling me that Jesus intended that the truth would be hidden from some and revealed to others? And I'm saying, yeah, that's what it says right here. We actually just read it. He did not say anything to them without using parables, the crowds. That's who he's talking about here. But when he was alone with his own disciples, he explained everything. But even the disciples couldn't get it. He kept telling them, I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to die. And they never did get it, did they? Never. Tell after the fact. So, so literally, um, Jesus is actively preaching and telling parables so that people who have eyes to see can see, and people who have ears to hear can hear, and to those who don't, they'll be sort of uh, left and cast aside. That's heavy. I mean, for me, that's heavy. So literally, if someone doesn't want the truth, if someone doesn't want to change, if, doesn't, if someone isn't unwilling to let the Holy Spirit sift their own lives, then the parables of God would not make sense. But to the man or the woman who came out to hear Jesus on that day, or any day, this day for that matter, who is hungry for the purpose of God, the presence of God, the power of God, and the person of God in Jesus through the Holy Spirit, to that person the parable is going to make sense and the kingdom is open. But there is a, um, there is a, just like I started this and said, the crowds came out to see John the Baptist and the crowds came out to see Jesus and how many were left after he ascended? 120. I mean, that's so small. That's the size of a seed. The purpose is not that Jesus made everything plain. The purpose is that you come hungry. And to those of us who are hungry for the things of God and relationship with God, the kingdom will be revealed. To those of us who are satiated with our own ego or our own looks or our own paycheck or our own house or our own agenda or our own job or you fill in the blank, the things of the kingdom will be hidden. And we'll go along our jolly way. All right. Now, last thing I want to point out here, and I think this is so important. Um, I, I am 40 years old. I've been a Christian since I was four. You believe that? That is a long time. That's like 36 years I gave my life to Jesus. I was raised in the church. Do you know how many Christian conferences I've been to? Do you know how many Christian things I've been to? Like little, you know, doodahs and meetings and gatherings and blah, blah, blah. Now, one of the things I've noticed over my entire life, 36 years of going to things, is there is something that when you go to Christian conferences, they talk about um, probably more than anything else. It's very unusual. Anybody want to, that wasn't here last service, venture a guess? Not faith, hope, and love. You can put those aside. I'm talking, there's a, there's a practical thing that many Christian conferences deal with? Prayer. What? Prayer. No, good guess. No, good guess. Those are both good. I'm thinking that this is very unusual. Ah, this is really good. I'm sorry you online can't hear all this. There may be all these great guesses. Maybe you have a great guess. Um, here's what I've heard more than anything else in terms of um, walking out the Christian life is leadership. How many books on Christian leadership can we pull up on Amazon right now? I mean, a lot. Who said that? A lot. Somebody over here. I mean, we could pull up more books on Christian leadership. Now, I want to propose something to you today. I think the most um, undervalued, underappreciated, um, underrated characteristic of a Christ follower is not leadership. You know what it is? Followership. The entirety of the gospel of Christ Jesus has to do with are we as believers willing to follow, to forsake our own way, to forsake my own will, to set it aside so I can follow Jesus. We ought to have more books written on followership because it's not about leadership. Now, okay, let me zoom out for a second. Think back to the Old Testament if you've ever read Exodus. If you haven't, pick up your Bible and read it this week. Moses leads the people out of slavery in Egypt. Yeah? It's called the Exodus, the exit from Egypt, right? Uh, so he literally leads them out, and they're camping in the desert, and they're in these little tents, and it's blazing hot during the day, and they're sweaty and stinky, and there's not enough food, and there's not enough water, and they're all grumbling. And yet outside the camp, does anybody remember what's there? During the day, there's a pillar of cloud. And at night, there's a pillar of 
fire. Now, when that thing moves, what do the Israelites do? Pack your tent and let's go. The essence of Christianity is when he moves, you move. When he speaks, you speak. Excuse me, you listen. The essence of this whole thing is actually following the person of Jesus. And we read the word to make sure that as we get the immediate and direct revelation of God in our lives now, that it's within the bedrock of scripture and not outside of that. And that's how we live our lives. The the measure of a Christian that you are is your own contrition of heart. I'm going to get on my knees because it's an outside symbol of an internal reality. But the measure of a Christian is truly how contrite are you in heart, how surrendered are are you in life, and can you follow King Jesus as you navigate? The essence of the Christian life is not merely studying the Bible or merely reading. No, no, no. The Bible becomes like a bedrock or a foundation. I like to think of it as a riverbed. Have you ever seen a dry riverbed? But a, a, a river, so the life of the Holy Spirit flows in us and through us in the bedrock of the Word, in the riverbed of the Word. So the Word begins to provide guidelines for the direct and immediate revelation of the Lord that happens as we live our lives. Okay? It's, it's both. Michael, are we a word church? You better believe it. Michael, are we a spirit church? You better believe it. It's both. So literally, what you have here is, uh, are you, I would ask this of you, make a little note if you want, where are you in your followership? Because it's an underrated but uh, imperative quality of those of us who are really in Christ Jesus. Okay. Uh, So part one, what was a parable? Part two, I'm shifting into. uh, What is the kingdom of God? Um, And and I'm going to have to um, bridge part two into part three to really unpack the kingdom of God because this is a little bit tricky. So uh, I already told you, um, but in Jesus' day, uh, rebellion is in the air. Violence is in the air. Anger is in the air. The people have literally been persecuted and mistreated by the Romans. I mean, if, if we had a house in the Israeli countryside, a Roman soldier could come in and do whatever he wanted whenever he wanted. And who are they going to call? The police? Who is the police? Like, go there a second. Rome! You can do what you want when you want as a Roman soldier in a country that you have occupied. Nothing as an as a Israeli um, homeowner or, or landowner or whatever is sacred because the Romans rule everything. They can come and take what they want when they want, and who are you going to call? Somebody said Ghostbusters. Thank you. How are you going <laughs> to? Children of the 80s or 90s. Oh, my goodness. Okay, so uh, part two. What is the kingdom of God? So rebellions in the air. These are, these are people who've been persecuted, hurt, um, hated, stolen from, and they are literally ready for King Jesus to rise up, become the Messiah, and overthrow Rome and establish world dominion, and they all want to be part of that world dominion, right? It sounds good. Oh, man, it feels good. And enter uh, King Jesus, and you have this mounting disaster because King Jesus is the absolute antithesis of sort of this Hebrew nationalism that is happening. You follow me? So King Jesus is on the totally other end of the spectrum. So the whole countryside is literally waiting for the Messiah to come be King David-esque, you know, big armies and whatever. And then Jesus comes in, and he rides on a stinking donkey. Like, you've got to, like, fully digest that. And not only that, but when he talks about the kingdom of God, which gets everybody riled up, and they're like, let's go, let's go, you know, it's Super Bowl, let's go! You know, they're ready, everybody on the seashore, and as he says the kingdom of God, they're like, let's revolt, let's do this! And then he goes, it's like a seed. I mean, you've got to feel the letdown here, because these people are all revved up with nowhere to go, and they're like, Jesus is our guy, he's going to do it. And then Jesus goes... The kingdom of God is like a seed. Now, go with me. So what is this kingdom of God? Uh, People would say uh, the kingdom of God um, was, the kingdom of God is, and the kingdom of God will be. Uh, Some some theologians would say the kingdom um, is now and the kingdom is not yet. So is the kingdom of God fully established? Yes. Will Jesus return and establish his kingdom on the earth one day? Yes. Revelation tells us he'll come in riding on a white horse, a white probably stallion, literally. And that is what the Hebrew nationalists of this day wanted. And instead, Jesus rode in on a donkey. That's right. Now we're getting it. So let's keep going here. So 
The meaning of these two parables, of the growing seed and of the mustard seed, uh, to me comes down to the difference between uh, domain and dominion. Okay? Hang with me here. The difference between domain and dominion. So it, it literally arises directly from the circumstances out of which Jesus was speaking, and you've got to understand the Bible in this type of circumstance that I'm putting it in today. You've got to like fully digest it and understand how people are hearing and seeing. So the Jews are waiting for the day that Jesus uh, or the, the Messiah would come and vindicate them, um, and they're ready to rebel, they're ready for some violence, they're ready to force the kingdom of God, and they're ready for Jesus to set up this earthly um, kingdom. And so now, the right thing at the wrong time becomes the wrong thing. The right way at the wrong time becomes the wrong way. Now, I want to I pause just a minute, and I want to take you back to this donkey that I keep bringing up. So that happened um, on, uh, we call it Palm Sunday now, but that's worth reading in your Bible. Flip to Palm, to, and I can't even tell you exactly where it is. You'll have to look it up. But Jesus rides in, um, in the Gospels, and he rides on a donkey, and the people are going bonkers. Do you remember what they're saying? Hosanna! And they're like taking their coats off and they're throwing their coats down and they're, they're cutting these um, branches off the palm trees and they're waving these branches and they're going, Hosanna! We're so excited. Now, what are they excited about? Most uh, people think they're celebrating King Jesus. But Hosanna, when you dig into it just a little bit, is actually a political slogan, not a spiritual one. Now, they're literally saying, save us from Rome. Set up a kingdom. Let's take them by force. Hosanna! Let's, we're here. We're with you. Let's rally. This is the Messiah. We're getting ready to overthrow Rome. We're getting ready to take him. We're going to knock them all dead, and we're going to establish the kingdom. World dominion is about to happen. We're in. We're in. This is so amazing. I promise you, that's exactly what was happening in the hearts and minds of the people. Now, how is it? How is it that a couple of short days later, if you haven't read this passage, you're going to have to go back and read it. If you're a new Christian, great. You've been thrown into the deep end. Come on on the journey so you can get to know this Jesus because he is real and he is here and he is my Jesus and he can be your Jesus. Now, okay, so uh, they're yelling Hosanna as, as, as Jesus is coming in on a donkey. How is it that just a couple of days later on a, on a platform that's probably not unlike this one, uh, you have Pontius Pilate with a guy named Barabbas and Jesus and Pontius Pilate wanting to say, set Jesus free, gives all of the very same people, mind you, that were just yelling, Hosanna, that's right, they're yelling Hosanna, he gives all the very same people an opportunity to set one of the two prisoners free. And Barabbas is a known criminal, and Pilate's going, I hope, in his mind, that's what the text says, that literally they'll set Jesus free. And what do the people yell about Jesus? Crucify him! How is it? that the people are literally saying, save us, overthrow Rome, set up your kingdom. And not a day, couple days later, the very same people are now yelling, crucify him. Now go here, church. This is so important. When God does not do it your way, when God does not do it in your timing, when God does not do it in your political party or your perceived sense of how it should go. It is very easy for us as believers to harden our heart and grow angry and suddenly we are going, crucify him. Drink deeply of that church. It is real. Let me clarify one thing straight away because I think this is important. The word kingdom here, when Jesus says kingdom of God, is an abstract noun. So it doesn't mean um, like a geographic area of land. That's a domain, okay? So like um, 
my brother is married to a, a girl from the United Kingdom. So the United Kingdom is a domain, right? There's, there's boundaries. It's geographic region, and that's a domain of rulership. Uh, now, dominion is something entirely different, and I think both of these parables come down to the difference between domain and dominion. Hang with me here. So literally... Um, Jesus is not, when he says the kingdom of God, he is not trying to establish a domain, literally a kingdom um, or a place or a geographical arena or a building. No, no, no. What he is trying to establish is dominion. And dominion has to do with a heart and a mind and a will that is fully surrendered to him. So when Jesus says, I've come to establish the kingdom of God, he is talking about hearts that are surrendered to him, minds that are surrendered to him, wills that are surrendered to him, where we go, you are Lord. And then the the people of God, um, the place of God is no longer a country, a a, a domain, if you will. It's now a dominion of people. So in other words, if you're in Jesus, Jesus is in you. You are grafted into the tree um, of of life, Jesus himself, and you actually become now the place of God and the people of God. Like that is what it means to be a Christian, is you are literally um, grafted into him. So his dominion, in other words, your will, your mind, your emotions are surrendered to him and his way. So what Jesus came to do is not establish a winky um, uh, uh, human dominion. Like it's not that. He's like, I don't care about Rome. I don't care about Rome. Rome's going to be gone in a few short years. What I care about is the domain, dominion, excuse me, of hearts and minds of people who will walk with me. Let me tread on something. Will America be here forever? Be very cautious, church. Be very cautious. Because there is something that I see. I'm not telling you to do anything different or change anything, but I am telling you that Hebrew nationalism was so potent and so strong in this day that the very king of glory came and the people missed it. The creator of the universe, the Lord of heaven and earth, the bookends of all time, King Jesus came and they were so infatuated with their Hebrew nationalistic idea, they missed the Messiah. The American church must be wary that in our Christian nationalistic viewpoint that we don't miss Jesus. It's bigger than a country or a place or a domain. The kingdom of God extends past it all. The kingdom of of God is about dominion in the human heart. The fourth thing I want to point to this morning is there's a warning in these two parables about people who are in too big of a hurry. And I just, that sounds so unusual. Let me just park there for a second. Uh, Amelia, I've got a three-year-old, and um, she and I, uh, both our, ki- our younger kids actually love to eat avocados. But Amelia and I on this particular day were eating an avocado. So we cut it open, and um, I didn't have anywhere to be, so she was holding half of avocado, and I was, and we were just eating our avocado with a spoon, right? A little salt, a little lime juice, like, man, that's awesome. So she and I are just talking, and we got to talking about the seed that's on the inside. Now, the kingdom of God is like a seed. So Amelia and I pulled that seed out, and we're just hanging out, and I pulled out a few toothpicks, and I put three toothpicks in the avocado seed, and then I filled up a little juice glass with water, and I set the avocado in the water. Now, go with me. What began to happen? Nothing. That's a really good answer. So let me tell you, uh, at our house, um, Amelia and I set up this little avocado seed, and for a week, nothing happened. And uh, we have an exchange student from Albania who I just love dearly that lives with us. His name is David. And David actually began to say, Michael, what are you doing? And I said, oh, I'm growing a seed. And he said, another week went by. Guess what happened? Nothing. Amelia went, Daddy, is it going to grow? I went, yeah. And David went, Michael, what is this, a decoration? (laughs) And so Abby, that's my wife, Abby and David are kind of like poking fun at me. It took six weeks. And suddenly this little crack appeared at the bottom of the seed. And out came this tiny little root that was so itty bitty. It was like, and I was like, Amelia, look. Look, 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 look. There's this little root. 
and a few weeks later that sprouted out the top and a little tiny leaf, and then it sprouted more. Father, help us. The seed, the kingdom of God is like a seed, is active and has life in of itself. And when that seed grows up into a big tree with roots, have you ever seen tree roots crack asphalt? You ever seen tree roots crack concrete? Literally, in that seed is the power of life that is so vibrant and so powerful that as it grows up, it will break concrete and break asphalt. So literally, when Jesus said, uh, this is what the kingdom of God is like, a man scattered seed, he's literally saying um, that we are the seed. And even on that day when he was sitting in the boat and he's teaching on this, on the northern part of the Sea of Galilee, he's actually probably foretelling that at the end of this, only 11 guys are going to stand with him. And at the end of his ascension, only 100 and 20 measly people will be there. And guess what? It doesn't matter because it's a seed. It's a seed. Now, let's look at this just a little deeper. Can Amelia and I make a seed grow? No. Uh, Can we put the seed um, in the sunlight? Yes. Can we put a little few drops of fertilizer in it? Yes, we did that. Uh, Can we change out the water? Yes. So do we as Christians have a responsibility to help create an environment in which the power, presence, um, and work of the Lord can happen? Yes. Who makes the seed grow? God. Not you. Not me. That seed's going to grow all by itself. Let Let us as a church, let us as believers, seek with every fiber of our being to produce the conditions in which the seeds of God can move in and among his people. Now, here's where I want to land it. Why in the world the mustard seed? David, do I have that verse or no? Grant? No, I don't. Okay, thank you. Um, So why a mustard seed? Let's do this quickly. The mustard seed was the smallest of all the seeds, um, and it is planted. It is teeny, teeny, tiny, tiny thing. And when it is planted, it grows into a tree that is about 20 feet by 20 feet. It is huge. And guess how many seeds that one seed produces on a mustard tree? Millions and millions and millions. Now listen to me, church. Uh, This is how a harvest happens. Just like there was 11 guys who became seeds that were sown. Think of that for a second. 11 guys. Christianity has gone around the globe again and again and again. Jesus was talking this day about those 11 people. And then he was talking about the 120. And then he was inviting you and I to be a part of the mustard seeds that would literally fall to the ground and die. One of my favorite verses is John 12, verse 24. My favorite translation is the New Living. And here's what it says. Jesus is talking. He says, I tell you the truth. Unless a kernel of wheat is planted in the soil and dies... Say that with me. Dies. It remains alone, but its death will produce many new kernels, a plentiful harvest of new lives. I think the question for us on this Super Bowl Sunday is not who's going to win. The question for us is, is your life under his dominion? And are you willing to be that seed that will fall to the ground and die? Because if you are, the capacity and the potential that he through you can produce thousands of seeds and change a neighborhood, a family, a city. That's the gospel of King Jesus. He will come back and set up his throne. The question is, will we as believers fall to the ground and die? so that many can live. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you for this morning. We praise you for your parables. We praise you for your stories. We praise you for all that you're doing in our midst. Lord, as we prepare for communion, and I'd even look into the camera as I'm praying and say, if you're at home, we're going to celebrate communion. If you have juice or bread or crackers, if you'll 
get it out with us, then we'll bless it and pray over it, and you can celebrate it with us. Can I go down, Grant? On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he sat with his 12 disciples right before one of them betrayed him. And he actually took a a loaf of bread and he tore it into two. And he said, this is my body given for you. Every time you do this, take and eat in remembrance of me. Those guys didn't even understand what he was saying because he hadn't gone to the cross. He hadn't died and he hadn't been raised. And then he took a cup. He took wine most likely red wine. Today we have juice. But he poured it out and he said, this is my blood, the blood of the new covenant. Every time you do this, do it in remembrance of me. He was actually telling them that I'm about to be the seed that's going to fall to the ground and die. And then he was looking at them, beckoning that they would do the same, that they would die to their own desires, their own vision, their own choices. And as they laid down their lives, that he would so cause that seed to break open and this huge tree to grow forth from it, that he would multiply his power in and through them across the face of the earth. The promise is the same for us today. As you take this communion, I want you to take it remembering not what you've done or what you failed to do, but I want you to take it with the revelation of what he's done in your place. Mike, Mac, would you guys come up? Lord, would you bless these common elements? Would you set them apart as we serve communion today? Would you guys, as you go around to people, would you simply say this is the body and the blood given for you? While they're going around, if you're at home, Grab some crackers, grab some juice, and if you'll hold it, we will actually share it together, whether you're home or whether you're here.
Let's take and eat and drink, remembering the price he paid and the life he lives, appropriating his death, life, and resurrection into ours. As we go from this place today, whether you're online or whether you're with us in person, Go with the trepidation that our own presumptions and assumptions and desires can put us in a place where we can miss the person and presence of King Jesus. Go with the self-revelation that your own preconceived ideas of what Jesus could do or should do or might do may lead you to a place where you're unable to see what he is doing. And go under the revelation that you're called to fall to the ground and die so that you can grow, he can grow in you and through you into a mighty tree that might bear an enormous harvest. If you're at home and you need special prayer, Patrick's online. If you'll connect with him, we'd love to field a phone call. If you've never given your life to this Jesus and you'd actually go, Michael, I've never heard anything like this. It's really simple. Romans 10, 9, and 10 says... If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's a prayer. If you're here in this room and you've never prayed that, would you grab me afterwards? If you're online, get in touch with Patrick and Patrick will connect you uh, with one of us, but we'd love to pray with you. As you go, go in the revelation that this Jesus loves you. And if you're hungry, he'll reveal himself to you, not just this day, but every day. And he'll fill you as you journey. If you need special prayer, there'll be a few of us up here. We love you and bless you. And trust that he is working in this day and in this age.